Well, on today's show, I have Stuart Land. He's, I guess you'd call him a renaissance man. I'm going to read a little bit from his extensive resume. Uh, He started out as an x-ray technician in the military, then went from, let's see, hairstylist to photographer, sculptor, costume designer, which led his way to Hollywood, working in special effects, sets, doing props for movies, And I guess he must have caught the real bug because he started doing screenplays, which led to novels. He teaches writing. And from what I hear, he's in a much uh, warmer climate than I am right now. He's in uh, calling from Thailand. So, Stuart, welcome to the show. And I hope I get some tidbits about uh, what a cozy lifestyle you seem to be living. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You know, when I say Renaissance man, you know, I'm not kidding. You know, a lot of people claim that, but you really have lived that. And before we get into, you know, a lot of your bigger projects, especially some of your recent novels, um, do you yourself consider yourself, you know, a a Renaissance man? Well, um, I guess in a sense you could say that because... Uh, I'm interested in a lot of different things, and when I get interested in them, I I learn them to the best of my ability. Um, Am I the best at any one particular thing? No, but I can do a lot of different things. So, and I try to do those as best I can. Um, I found early on that I wasn't so interested in being the number one person in one particular subject. I was more interested in learning about a lot of subjects that I was interested in and then doing them as well as I could. Well, when you were doing the x-ray technician, for some reason that pops out to me, that's kind of a cool thing. And even though, you know, you're not doing it now, I think just thinking back to, um, like, when was that? Like back in the seventies? No, this was, (laughs) this was the height of the Vietnam war. For me, this was, uh, 1966 to 1972. Wow. So you have some real history there. So having been in the Vietnam War, you know, doing, you know, x-ray technician, you know, what what did you get from that that, you know, you keep with you now, you know, especially, you know, millennials who, you know, frightfully don't even, you know, remember anything before 1990 in some cases, but, you know, the whole historical significance of the Vietnam War, you know, how has that stayed with you and influenced your career? Well, it was a pretty big event for me because um, I had just gotten out of high school and I was drafted. So, Instead of going into the army, which I had seen some of my friends do, and they came back pretty battle-scarred or dead. And uh, so I went into the Air Force. And the Air Force allowed me to choose what profession I wanted. So I picked the medical profession. And that way, um, one, I didn't have to go to Vietnam. I could, because I lived near D.C., I could be placed in the hospital there at Andrews Air Force Base where the the president goes for medical care at that time. And uh, it was the biggest hospital in America for the military. So that's where I served all all my time. And then I could uh, work on other people who got injured from the war 
um, without having to actually go to the war. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes me think of, do you, you know, the um, special effects makeup artist Tom Savini? Well, I know who he is, but I never met him. Yeah, because he did like, um, what was it? Um, gosh, Dawn of the Dead, I think, and Friday the 13th, kind of that era, kind of really um, took off during the slasher era. But I just remember reading about him saying that, you know, being in the war really influenced how effective and realistic I think a lot of his special effects makeup was. Um, did you also use a lot just doing, you know, medical work in the war? Did that later come back and influence when you were, say, doing, you know, uh, props and just working on realistic special effects for, you know, science fiction movies? <laughs> well, actually, that's funny because uh, mostly uh, I didn't do a lot of the gore stuff in movies. I, um, I decided I didn't want to work on those kind of killer movies, like Friday the 13th and, and all those. But actually later, when I moved to Thailand and then I went to China and worked on movies there, um, I did some effects where I had to make a lot of dead people for uh, a war movie. And from that, I, I used the knowledge that I had about looking at real wounds and, and how they were, which put me in a little confrontation with some other effects artists who never had seen a war and never had seen a dead person, and their effects were a little different than my effects. So they didn't necessarily believe the things that I was making. Well... I'm going to blow your horn a little bit here. Um, some of the movies that you have worked on, um, effects-wise, is Aliens, you know, the sequel to the original. I'm assuming this is the Aliens uh, with um, Cameron. Yeah, James Cameron, right. James Cameron. Uh, you worked on Predator, The Abyss, another James Cameron movie, uh, Poltergeist 2, Beetlejuice, which is such a cult classic now, Independence Day, and others. And it's kind of interesting. You've worked on some major Hollywood productions. I mean, how, how does someone, you know, get on all those big sets? Huh, well, um, at the time, we didn't know they were big sets. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were just uh, movies. But at that time, a lot of special effects came into... Uh, view, and so they had to hire a lot of uh, sculptors and other artists, and, uh, and basically, that's how I got into the union, because the union at that time was only 40 people um, in the sculptors' union. So, to be on a on a union film, you had to be in the union, and you, of course, you can't get into the union. It's it's a tricky thing about getting into union, but because they needed people, uh, they allowed me and five or six other people to join the union to work on um, whatever film it was. I forgot at, at this point. Um, mm. And so at that time from the mid 80s to the mid 90s was the high point of uh, physical special effects. So. All the time that I was on, it was transitioning from physical effects to computer effects. 
Mm-hmm. So I remember when the Abyss came out, that was such an early one that used digital effects. The uh, the Abyss, yes, but before the, that, the water, like the water creature, like the you know going through, and you saw that head in the water. I remember that was a big deal at the time with the digital effects. Right. Yeah. That that was like one of the first major thing. But I think before that, Predator had digital effects. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was just a year or two before the abyss. Uh, <laughs> I'd have Give to or look take. At my resume. <laughs> I don't remember the, the dates anymore. But sure. But I mean, things were relatively basic then as far as the physical effects um we at that time we still used real skeletons for skeleton people (laughs) they weren't plastic like they are now and um so everything was sort of real back then so basically like skeletons you got from cadavers correct from india my goodness yeah they came they came, they came in crates. Is that where your uh, military experience helped you to not maybe freak out like some of your coworkers from working with real skeletons? Um, I don't remember anybody freaking out about it. We, we sort of questioned where they were getting these skeletons, you know, because we don't know i mean we don't know where these dead people came from and i think that was one of the reasons they stopped using them after a while well as a writer that that sounds like it could be a basis for a whole movie you know a special effects crew that's getting all these skeletons and then suddenly realizing uh oh where are these actually coming from <laughs> you're probably right <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you'll allow me to be uh, a bit of a fan for a little bit, I'd like to go through several of these movies and ask you a few specific questions about the making of them, especially because, you know, some of these are, you know, 80s classics now. I know Independence Day was in the 90s, but a lot of the ones you were on is just during, I think, so many people who came of age during that era. These were the movies that influenced them, and in some cases... They went on to make their own movies. I think a lot of current filmmakers say, wow, Aliens blew me away. That made me want to make those kinds of movies or Predator, you know, all of these. So I just want to uh, briefly stop at each movie and ask you a couple questions about the, the sets and the making of. Yeah, sure. Well, yes. Um, but actually, I came into the movies the same way everybody does now uh, because I saw the original Alien and I said, um, I have to go to Hollywood <laughs> because I, I had no experience in Hollywood at all. I didn't know how to make special effects. I was a fine art sculptor. So um, when I went to Hollywood, I didn't know anyone and didn't know anything about the movies. And, and that's a whole other story. Well, then that'll help me with my first question about Aliens, the sequel like the first alien with just an S at the end. But the first one had such a distinct look, you know, speaking of sculpture, um, you know, the H.R. Giger who created the look. Right. So I'm wondering when you approached aliens, how much of his 
previous look did you use? Were you even allowed to use it? And how, how much new could you add to the look of the aliens? Well, okay, well, this is a little complicated because in Aliens, um, I was approached not because of Giger's stuff, but because at that time I was moving from a fine artist to a special effects artist. And when I went around to the different places and I showed my portfolio, uh, at that time I was a figure sculptor, so all my figures were nude women so Mm -hmm. this sort of spread around and they called me up and they said well you can sculpt nude women we want you to come in and sculpt Sigourney Weaver for the alien for the uh, part where she fights the alien queen at the end oh my so basically we took the um, the full-size alien and the full-size power loader and we had to shrink it down to two feet and make her body uh, as a puppet to go inside this thing that could be manipulated for shots. And that's how they did the shot at the end of the movie because the real power loader was 12 feet tall and you couldn't do much with it. Wow, so was that all to full scale or was this like an abbreviated you know, version of her? What, what were the proportions? Um, I think she was about maybe 18 inches, something like that, or 15 inches. There, there's a pictures, a picture of it, of her on uh, my my website. So it shows okay. how big she is. Well, since you were known for sculpting female nudes, I guess the obvious question would be: Did Sigourney pose for you nude for your sculpture? Well, that was another strange thing. When I got to the shop, they didn't have the power loader and they didn't have any pictures of Sigourney of what she was supposed to look like. So originally, they stuck me with trying to build a power loader, but I'm not a model maker. So I I tried it for a couple of days and I said, look, I don't know anything about model making although I would love to do it, you're going to have to get a real model maker in here to do it. So they did that, and, and this guy was great. So then um, they sent me modeling pictures of Sigourney from when she was a fashion model. And I said, well, how can I use this to make her in a power loader w- with her face and her and her figure? Well, they didn't have anything. So then I I talked to James Cameron and I said, look, I need some shots of her in the pose with her face. So he went to New York and he, I guess he woke her up because he took some pictures of her in her pajamas posing in the pose, (laughs) but she had no makeup and she had no expression for what the pose was. So everything he sent me was pretty useless. So what I ended up doing was going to the original movie and taking a clip from when she was fighting something, her expression, and I made the whole figure from that. Wow, so did you ever get to meet her? No. So you did all that just from photos, not no real-life modeling? Correct. 
Wow, well, that's a, a testament to you that, you know, you're able to do that from, you know, from 2D to create something three-dimensional. Yeah, well, I had, I, well, I used a lot of um, model pictures to get what her arms and legs and her figure looked like because there was no nudes. So basically I had to make the figure and then they, uh, another person came in and made all the clothes, which were real clothes. So the only thing I did that, of the clothes was I had to sculpt the shoes, which were these new Reeboks, which I had to sign a non-disclosure statement because nobody had ever seen them. And so that was part of the figure was these, uh, these new Reeboks that they made, which I heard they just started to come out with now, 35 years later. My goodness. So early product placement in an alien movie. Right. Well, James Cameron, this was a big deal for him, I remember, when Aliens came out. And he really brought much more of an action feel, you know, to the sci-fi horror. But even at that point, he had done Terminator and very, you know, popular right off the bat. But he hadn't quite broken through in, you know, the huge way until, I would say, Terminator 2. I mean, he was growing, getting popular but did it feel like when you guys were making this that there, like he was just on the edge of, of becoming, you know, a blockbuster director? Um, well, we didn't think he was on the edge. He was basically at the top at that time. Okay. And um, we, we had, there were some sayings, but I can't remember exactly what they were, but, um, there was a, a, a movie out, a, an animated film of a Bambi movie that was a few minutes long. And at the end of that movie, uh, Godzilla comes in and steps on Bambi. But <laughs> through the whole animation, they show the name of the person that created it. And so for every single event, it's the same person, right? So that's how we felt about a James Cameron film. Every single thing that was in it has his name on it. So basically the crew and a lot of the actors did not care much for James Cameron. <laughs> although, although he is a brilliant screenwriter, which got me to write scripts because of the way he wrote them. And, um, and he has an exceptional mind, but he was a bit bossy. Sure. Well, for people who are, you know, armchair uh, critics, just briefly say to them, I mean, the enormity of doing a film like Aliens and just coordinating so many creative people. What does it really take? I mean, you know, you were in the military. Doesn't it basically take, you know, an, an army general to direct and lead a cast and crew like this? Um, yes. Well... The general is the producer, and uh, and then James Cameron became the producer and the director. So yes, um, on set the director has complete control of everything that goes on. Still, there are good directors, good actors, and then there's not so good. So, you know, you have this whole choice to decide upon. And I think as James Cameron 
aged, he got a little better with this. Mm-hmm. So I've worked, what... I've worked on two of his films. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of stuff for them, and I got no credit for either one. When you watch Aliens, can you pick out your work? Can you, you know, scene by scene say, you know, there's a part of me there. I see, you know, part of my work here. Is it real clear cut for you? Well, yeah, I mean, I can, I can tell every uh, scene that my figure is in because they cut between the live action and the miniature. And it's moving so fast in the movie, uh, nobody can tell. They don't know how it's done. Are you proud of that work? Sure, I'm proud of all the stuff I do. <laughs> As you should be. So I know for a lot of people, you're working one movie, and people are seeing your work even before the final edit, and that gets you your next job. Like, were people seeing you during Aliens thinking, wow, this guy knows what he's doing, and did that, like, lead you to your next job? I would say no. Um because um, in Hollywood at that time, and maybe now, you have to be known. You have to get yourself out there and you have to go and meet everybody and then they see what you do. Because I've worked on over 30 major films and I only got three credits. So that's how Hollywood works at that time. I don't know if that's how it still works. But is, people, is that something that the union helps you with to make sure you get credit? No, the union did nothing for me. So um, what they did do is they allowed me to work on union films. But as far as uh, the union is a very tricky thing. Unions are generally good, but you have to understand how unions work. And it's very political and... Um, and they cannot be very nice. So for me, it allowed me to work on films I wouldn't be able to work on if I wasn't in the union. But, uh, but mm -hmm. most of the films I worked on were not union. Okay. So how did you get the job on Predator? Let's see. Predator. Um, well, I... I can't remember if that was my first union job or, or not, um, because a lot of these films, you know, they went back to back, but I was hired by Boss Film Company to do some work, and then, uh, then they called me back, you know, when they needed sculptures. Usually the, 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 the sculpting aspect of it was filled with everybody they could find. And since at that time there was only 40-plus sculptors in the union, you know, they had to spread them around. The Predator costume is so iconic now. So when you started working on that film, were those designs already made? Were you just given sketches saying, hey, this is your part of the design of this? How did that all work, and what was your contribution well, I worked on the first Predator. So a lot of the, well, let me think. For me, um, most of the things I made 
actually came out in the movie. But the original Predator looked nothing like the Predator that we see in the movie today. So we worked on this original Predator and nobody in the shop thought it would work. We were told by the production company and the producers this is what they want and to make it. And that's what we were forced to do. Uh, I didn't work on the uh, original Predator except I made uh, the, um, the chest, um, the rib cage for the original Predator. I did that and you can sort of see it if you see pictures of it. Um, but I did other things. I made all the internal organs for the dead people. I made the the guy hanging in the tree that you first see that's, uh, that gets killed, who was actually um, uh, a screenwriter who uh, was an actor in the film and he gets killed, but his screenplay went on to be lethal weapon and he made $3 million. So, you know, oh different goodness. people. They do different things and uh, and become famous, but yeah, I made I made some other um, grisly effects uh, for that movie. Did now, you make make anything that was directly on Arnold Schwarzenegger? Um, on Arnold. On or near or <laughs> related to his well, character? Well, I made things on other other guys that got wounded by the alien things that burst through the chest, you know, the, the thing where the chest bursts open, you know, the thing goes through the, um, what's the name of the, the, um, the wrestler actor who became a, a governor. Oh, the governor. Oh, I can yeah. picture him. Yeah. So, uh, me and my friend, uh, Mark made that thing that burst out of his chest so we couldn't figure out how to do it and I was going to sculpt all the ribs and I said look why don't we go and have ribs for lunch and then we'll take the ribs <laughs> and break them in half and that's what we'll use and that's what we did well talk about high tech <laughs> right <laughs> well I just cheated and googled and that was Jesse Ventura yeah Jesse oh my goodness Talk about, you know, the career trajectory of people. Jesse goes on to the governor. The one guy does lethal weapon. When you're around all that, does that make you think that, hey, maybe anything is possible in Hollywood? Well, we pretty much believe that anyway, because uh, these shops that I worked in, they were all cutting edge. And so people from other countries, from Japan and China, um, these guys would fly over on their own and they would get into the business. And now all these people are very famous. And most of the people that I worked with on those crews are also very famous and have their own companies and do a lot of the movies that uh, we still see today. Um, uh, and then you're talking about practical effects too. Yeah, practical effects, and then they move on to digital effects. You know, my my friend uh, uh, Mark, um, we worked on physical effects, and then I introduced him to the people in uh, George Lucas's company, and he went up there, and he's still working there, and he became a digital effects artist. Wow. So when you're in one of these shops, you know, you're doing Predator, 
You have people, you know, from everywhere, you know, the, the top people. What's it like? What's the camaraderie like? You know, do you guys have strange senses of humor? I mean, are you pulling pranks on each other? You know, what's, what's it like in the workshop? Well, actually, uh, that shop, Boss Film, was a great place to work. Um, there was a lot of people. There was hundreds of people. Well, I don't know, at least a hundred or so people, um, maybe about a dozen sculptors, and then there was model makers and effects people, and it was a pretty big place. So, yes, we, um, there was people that we loved and people we didn't love, you know, it was just the regular personalities, but we pranked each other all the time. One of the things we did <laughs> was to, when we make molds, we had to use hemp, which is like, um, you know, a fiber from pot plants. And mm -hmm. uh, you would use that in the plaster to make the mother molds. Well, we would take the hemp while it was still hemp and we'd make a tail out of it. And then we would pin it to the back of somebody's to their butt and they didn't know it. So they were running around the shop with this tail hanging off of them and that everybody would take pictures of it. So oh, that was funny. pretty funny. So, so pretty much everybody got that treatment. <laughs> well, one thing I always wonder, what kind of mementos do you get? Do you get to take a mold home? Do you get to, you know, bring pieces back with you? You know, what are your mementos from Predator? Uh, actually, uh, we're not allowed to bring anything from the shop. And a lot of places didn't want you to take pictures. Um, I did anyways. Um, actually, I have a video. I think I have the only video of that error uh, while we were shooting Predator, actually. Um, and I, I put it up on Kickstarter and, and no, nobody was interested. But they didn't understand what it was. Uh, so I might put it up again in the next few months. But, um, yeah. Um, I think you should. I think there's people who would be interested in that. Yeah, well, uh, I thought there it would be because it was the 30th anniversary of the film. Um, but not enough people uh, understood what it was that I had shot, which were basically all the people now that are famous for special effects because we were all new at it. Mm -hmm. So who are the, some of the people you worked with on that that went on to be, you know, names within, you know, the special effects world? Well, uh, let's see. Um, there's, um, you know, me, me and names. <laughs> um, uh, or maybe Wett, some of the or some uh, of the movies these well, people went on Steve, to be in. Yeah, you know, uh, most people know who Steve Wang is. Steve Wang uh, was 19 years old when we worked on the uh, uh, Predator, and he sculpted. He and uh, Matt Rose, who was also 19, they sculpted the original Predator, the complete thing, and uh, Steve painted it as well. So these guys are now super famous. Unfortunately, uh, Matt Rose died last year, but uh, Steve has his own shop, and uh, he makes a lot of physical effects for um, uh, for festivals and fairs. I'm not sure if he does too many movies. I think he does that too. 
but people can look him up. He's he's pretty well known. Um, let's see, uh, Laurie Marums, who's who's now a fine art painter, but she sculpted E.T. before Predator, um, so she was pretty well known, and she did a uh, you know a lot of. Um, famous movies, which I can't remember what they are. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of people, um, you know, the, the, the people that, uh, did all the effects for aliens, the, uh, the mechanical effects, um, Doug Beswick and, uh, other people like that, they're all pretty famous. So, you know, they, they were famous before I came along. When you were doing this, especially back in the 80s, did you feel like you were part of a special era of filmmaking? Well, I felt honored that I even got into it because uh, when I got into it, a lot of these people were already into it for a, a number of years and I was new to it. So um, I had to learn all kinds of new techniques, which I didn't understand because fine art sculpture is one thing. But we didn't, I didn't have to learn, I mean, I had to learn the techniques for making things realistic and, and how to apply them to people and creatures and monsters, and then how to think on your feet at a, at a moment's notice. Um, well, because, with your background, you know, and you talk about other people with a fine arts background, you know, photographer, sculptor, costume designer. You know, people with a certain sensitivity, that's what makes you a good artist, a creative person. But to combine that with movie making, which is kind of tough, you know, and often it's a very non-creative, it's a, just a money-making bottom line industry. How did you reconcile, you know, your more sensitive, creative self with, with an industry that's sometimes pretty brutal? Uh the movie industry is very brutal. Um, and the art aspect of it, once you, you get into that element and that you're hired, then it's pretty much art. I mean, you're told what to do. Um, and they generally, the art department gives you diagrams or, or maquettes and you copy it or you, you make them bigger, smaller, whatever they want. But a lot of times with me, um, I was brought in and they didn't have ideas. And instead of having three months or six months, like an art department does to come up with ideas, they'd bring me on the first day and they say, make it. And I had no time. So basically I would come onto a set and have to figure out what it was and start working from the day, from day one. And that's how I got a lot of the jobs because I could create on the go. So you're pretty flexible. Well, I had to become flexible because um, I didn't have the background that all these other people had. Nobody had heard of me. So it took me seven months of going to every shop and meeting every person in Hollywood before I got my first job. Wow. We often hear stories in, in different elements of, of Hollywood, not just special effects, but 
someone is hired, you know, overnight, they come in, you know, the next morning and they kind of, they, they quickly realize, oh my goodness, I'm replacing someone who was just fired. You know, did you ever get that feeling that, uh-oh, I think someone was just fired and I was the last minute replacement? Hmm. Um, well, yes, that happened to me later on because then uh, I got hired as sort of a doctor to fix the things that other people screwed up. So uh -huh. then, then I did get hired because other people were fired. That's such a sensitive thing, too, because you put your heart and soul into the work. And, you know, it happens with everyone. You probably find that with screenwriting, too. You know, it's the classic tale of you write this great script, you sell it, and then all the producer or director want to do is change all the things you love about your script. That's true, too. And I, mean, and I got How do you fired. deal with that? Well, I got, in, in all the things that I worked on, I got fired twice. So, you know, the people find stuff they just don't like or they don't like you personally and um, and then they go with somebody else but um, so you know it's personal and it's not personal at the same time so it's a tricky thing sure well let's talk about another sequel you worked on just a crazy movie I can remember seeing in the theater in the 80s and that is Poltergeist 2 which I think uh, came out is a little bit after the original. I think the original was, what, 82, and then Poltergeist 2 came out several years, maybe 85, 86, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Um, Poltergeist. And what did you do on that? Did you work on that crazy little worm that came out of the tequila bottle? Um. Do you remember that part? <laughs> I'm trying to remember what I did on Poltergeist 2. Oh, Poltergeist 2. Okay, I uh, no, I actually made the body of the great beast. Wow. Yeah, that's when um, uh, Giger sent his um, his his assistant to to Hollywood. He didn't come. I don't know if he ever came for that, maybe at the end, but he sent his assistant who sort of looked over all the stuff we made to make sure it was Giger-like. So the great beast at the end of the show, um, it was a, a combination of all kinds of strange things. So the body that I made was about, I don't know, seven or eight feet long. And, uh, and it, it was a combination of skulls and these phallic symbols and weird stuff. And I sculpted it all out of uh, wed clay, which is like a water-based clay. And, uh, and then they molded it and they cast it. And then they hung so many things on it, you couldn't even tell what I made. Oh, no. <laughs> well, with Giger, that, that sounds totally his style. And it's so funny that... You know, not not in Aliens, but, you know, so iconic in Alien. Then you had this near miss with him there. Or did you always, like, skirt around the edges of Giger, or did you ever end up getting to meet him? I, I never met him, but, but I knew his assistant. So I think his name was Andre. 
Uh, he was a nice guy. But no, you couldn't skirt anything. Everything had to be exactly like Giger uh, designed it. He was pretty particular, wasn't he? Like, I think in the Alien sequels, was it either he gets full credit and full design or nothing? Like, it sounds like he didn't want them just to incorporate a little bit of his original and let other people doctor that up. No, you couldn't doctor anything by him. And, and they went to him. He didn't, he didn't go to, to Hollywood. They came after him, and he set his agreement. And he was smart to do that because... I know the production designers on those films, and, and um, they hired me, but they were not nice to me. So, yes, he was, a, he was smart, and he could do it. So you were there to carry out someone else's vision? Well, on that film, yes. On that film. And what does that take? Because obviously you've got a lot of your own original ideas and creativity. What's it like to suppress some of that and just serve someone else's vision? Well, that's part of the job as a sculptor and you're working for somebody else and it's a Hollywood uh, event. So you basically do what they tell you because generally sculptors and other artists are not part of the art department who create these things or design them. So you basically do what they told you. And, uh, and I did those things. Um, but then in other things, I was brought on and, uh, as part of the art department. So they, well, I sort of put myself into it. That's, that's how I got into uh, sculpting for, um, uh, for Polter, not Poltergeist, uh, I'm trying to remember. Maybe it was Poltergeist. Uh, no, Invaders from Mars. That was a, a Toby Trooper film. So I went to a, a, a breakfast, Hollywood breakfast, you know, where it's a very expensive place and it's all the producers and director and, and some of the artists and you all gather around a table, like 30 people, and they talk about the film and what they're going to do. And so... They had all these effects that they wanted to do, but they didn't have a spaceship. So while everybody's eating, I had a piece of clay and a fork, and I sculpted a spaceship, and I handed it up the row of people, and Toby looked at it, and he looked at me, and I said, I just sculpted it because you, knew you didn't have an idea. And he said, start tomorrow, you're hired. Wow. And that's how I got the job. Well, you took a lot of initiative there. Good for you. Well, the only thing, because I had no idea why I was there. So I bet everyone else looked at you like, oh, why didn't we do that? Uh, well, I was not a popular person on that production. <laughs> they were probably so jealous of you for, you know, being the one that actually made something happen. Well, what happened was I made the spaceship. And uh, I was directly assigned under the production designer. So they put me in these um, very expensive shops that were run by, you know, very famous people. And they just forced me into this place. 
So I designed and built the spaceship, and then they had me come and build the um, the ray guns, which somebody else designed those. So I just basically copied their design. And then they sent me down to the set, and they said, here we have this fabrication of this giant needle machine, which hung in the air 30 feet up, and it was 30 feet long extended, and it compressed down to 10 feet. So it was tube after tube that sort of came out like a syringe. And they said, we don't have a design. Start today, design it, and build it. Wow. <laughs> and I had nobody to work with, and this thing was huge. <laughs> and that's what I did. I spent like two months designing and building this thing, and then I got an assistant, and he was already a famous person from working on Friday the 13th. So I felt really bad that this guy, who was already famous in films, was now working under me, who hadn't worked on anything. That's showbiz. That was showbiz. <laughs> well, if that was your first with him, I, I think the year before Invaders from Mars, Toby Hooper made Life Force. Were yes, you involved I, with that at all? No. That's what they showed me after they hired me, and I almost had a heart attack watching it. <laughs> because, I like that one. I, I, I thought that was one of his better movies. Well, maybe in, maybe in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> but what I thought, I thought it was like Michael Jackson reborn. <laughs> You know, speaking of, you know, Michael Jackson, when Thriller came out, that added such a special effect twist to music videos. Did you do any um, sculpting or special effects for music videos? Um, no, not of, of any music videos. Uh, I did something for a music video, but it was with uh, Pia Zadora. I, oh, was it from Voyage of the Rock Aliens? Uh, you know, I don't know, but I, I made sort of an alien cave. Maybe oh, she, my goodness. So I, ne I never actually saw it. You know, it was like this sort of strange cave with stalactites and stalagmites and all this kind of weird stuff that we got to create. Now you've got me intrigued. Th this sounds interesting. Was this like mid-80s? Yes. I wonder if it was for the song, uh, When the Rain Begins to Fall. I don't know. I don't. I guess I would, could go online and look at a bunch of her videos and see oh God. what she well, did. Were you on like the set when she was performing? No, I just made the set. Oh, darn it. Because I think she did that song with Jermaine Jackson. Yeah, it would have been nice. <laughs> well, I'm going to look that up online, too, and see if there's a cave scene. That would be great. And then I'm going to scrutinize the stalactites and the stalagmites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's a picture on my website. I have shots of some of these things. Oh, well, I'm definitely going to go back and look at some more of that. I did, do want to briefly go back to Poltergeist 2. You know, they used to say there was a Poltergeist curse. What are your thoughts on that? No, yeah. Uh, other people have asked me about that. Um, I wrote something on Quora uh, about it because 
yes, uh, people died on that show, but 3,000 people worked on that show. So um, I think that what happened it was really unfortunate um, because the, the teenage girl was killed by her boyfriend and the, the Indian guy died of the flu and, uh, and the, the poor little girl also died of uh, uh, some strange uh, uh, internal organ problem. Um, but these people, they were super nice when I got to meet them. Um, so, Did you uh, get to meet uh, Julian Beck? I think he played like the preacher or he was a really intimidating guy in Poltergeist too. Uh, are you talking about the, uh, the, the guy that uh, had no legs and only one arm? No, I think this was, a, I think it was a really tall guy. Maybe, bad memory here. I think it was like a, maybe a cult leader or a deranged minister or. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. He was the actor. I, I didn't meet him. Okay. So but he was also one that they all considered. I think it was after the movie. They thought his death was kind of tragic too. No, he, when he came onto the movie, he was already dying of cancer and we okay. all did that. So he, he did it anyways, even sure. though he was sick. He was a he was a pretty cool guy. I didn't actually meet him. Because um, he had, had quite a theater background, I remember. Go ahead. Oh, you I heard? just remember he had quite a theater background too that he was very well known for. That actor. Yeah. Well, what what is it with Hollywood? You know, people love true crime now, and Hollywood loves a good Hollywood crime. You know, do you think people go too far in that direction? Like, even though Hollywood by its very nature is a bit lurid, do you think we need to pull back and not be so lurid and just say, you know, give actors, give people in Hollywood just a little distance, let them, you know, grieve, let them have their own personal lives? Well, yes, but that's not going to happen because people are enamored with... Uh, people that are made famous and they're made famous because you see their image everywhere. And that's why actors are, are so successful. When actors started out, uh, they weren't successful like that. Neither were models. So it, it all comes with exposure and you get more exposure with the internet. So people who do absolutely nothing are super famous. And when you saw this firsthand, what kind of thoughts go through your head? Like you're ambitious, you want to succeed, but did you also see the downside and think, well, gosh, how serious am I? You know, how do I want to, you know, make this my next 30 years of my life? You know, this crazy hired one minute, you know, looking for a job, you know, for six months after that job. I mean, the job security is enough to make anyone go a little nuts down there because you never know what, when your next job is coming. Well, that's true. And it also depends on exactly what you want to do. Um, most of the artists or the sculptors that I knew back then, that's all they wanted to do. They wanted to be sculptors or painters and that's where they put their focus. And so they all became quite famous, most of them. And uh, 
but for myself, um, I had too many interests. So I would, I, I did the sculpting for about 15 years in Hollywood. I worked on movies, but I did a lot of theme parks, museums, uh, all kinds of, of things. But um, I became enamored with writing and writing scripts and then writing novels. So my interests swayed. So I didn't stick to one thing. And then I wanted to direct movies. So I put a lot of effort into going after that. So if, if any, anyone in any of the arts sticks to one art, they can become very famous. If you scatter it around, um, it's highly improbable that you'll become famous in one art. But some people do, you know. Uh, there are famous people that can do everything, the Renaissance man, who uh, can do all these things and become famous. So you have to sort of make a choice of what you want. When you decided to pursue screenwriting and do less of the sculpting and special effects, was that going through your mind like, wow, I'm getting momentum in this one, you know, art and craft. Am I going to lose all that momentum if I go into screenwriting? Huh. Um, I don't think it was that exactly because I had momentum as a sculptor, but, um, but I didn't get credit for most of the things I did. Um, and, and that was a political thing. And, and, and I worked on a lot of different movies and I did a lot of major things and I designed stuff and I still didn't get a credit. So I wasn't getting momentum in that way. People knew who I was because I was in the industry. So then they would hire me. Um, so the sculpting, I figured I could do it at any point and, uh, and I was still doing some fine art stuff, but, uh, the screenwriting um, sort of took over, so I would work so I could take time off to write. So what was the first feature-length screenplay you wrote? The first one. Um, Can you remember? Was it influenced oh, yeah. by the movies you had been working on? Um, yes, it was, it was sort of that... Um, it was a sort of a sci-fi ghost story. It was called The Machine. And, uh, and I wrote that and I sent it around and, uh, and I got an agent. Um, but people read it, but nobody bought it. But the funny thing is, 30 years later, um, I pitched it in China and they bought it. <laughs> so you can never wow. tell. <laughs> 30 years later. Yes. Wow. Well, that's encouraging. Well, I know for, you know, any screenwriters hearing this, I think, you know, the first thought that would go through my mind is, well, if you're going to pursue screenwriting, go back to the contacts that you've made. And if you made contacts, you know, obviously working with James Cameron and, you know, all these amazing people and working on, you know, the sets of, you know, a similar genre to what you're writing, did that help you? No. So um, as a screenwriter, you couldn't go back to any of these people and say, this is what I'm doing now. Can you 
you know, put this script in the hand of this agent or this director? Well, I, I tried that with um, Shane Black, who wrote Lethal Weapon, because mm-hmm. I basically sculpted him for Predator. Um, and I sent him uh, a query letter explaining who I was and all that stuff. And I got absolutely no reply whatsoever. What? So, yes. As far as uh, James Cameron, James at that time, James Cameron was not a nice guy. And I could go into that, but I won't. But he was not somebody you could approach for anything. And what I found out was in Hollywood, there's these definitive lines. You cannot go from one aspect of Hollywood into another. They, you can't say, well, I'm a special effects guy, and now I want to be a screenwriter. It does not help you. It hinders you. So you, I wanted to go into screenwriting. I did not mention any of the things that I had worked on before. Wow. Did that frustrate you? Well, it was just, it was common knowledge, so it was beyond frustration. But with my first few scripts, I did get agents. And, um, but, you know, that's a whole nother category uh, of, of how Hollywood treats people. And only now, 30 some years later, do they have the Me Too movement, which now addresses uh, problems they had with women in film, but they don't address a lot of other things that writers went through and are still going through. Sure. Well, after you got your agent, you know, a lot of people think, oh, now I've got it made. They think an agent means instant sales, which is not definitely not always the case. So what what was going through your mind? Like when you got your agent, you thought, now I'm set. Now people are going to recognize me. No, all an agent does is you still have to do all the work that you did before, but people will read your stuff, whereas before they wouldn't. So you send things and it goes through your agent. So you don't have to pay for every single thing. But still, you know, my stuff was sent out to a lot of people and they liked what they read. And... um from that, I got meetings. I, uh, I sent a script to Star Trek, and they loved what I wrote, and I was called in for a meeting, and I became friends with the producer-director, and I pitched them nearly 50 stories. And 50 stories means you don't write a script, but you have to write the complete story, the beginning, middle, and end, and all the characters for every single story that you pitch. Wow. So and I this did was that for the um, TV show Star Trek The Next Generation? Yes, all three of them. Okay. Whatever, wow. you, know, you know, I pitched for all three of them. And I pitched to mostly my friend, but I pitched to all of the writers there. And I knew them all, and we all got along. And um, they basically um, started using parts of my stories. They used my characters. I used their names that I gave them. And they never gave me any credit, and they never paid me. 
Wow. Was that pretty disillusioning for you? Yes. So that ruined a friendship and my relationship with that aspect of Hollywood. Wow. It seems like Hollywood is filled with so many near misses and, you know, you almost get something that it falls through at the last moment. Now, I know you've had work option before. That's another thing that's kind of mysterious to a lot of people where, okay, you think for, you know, you get a little bit of money, they get to tie up your work for, you know, a certain time period and then make their decision. They're either going to buy the whole thing or pass, and then you can market the script to somebody else. So Correct. what were, what was that process like for you? Well, in some ways it was fun because in the beginning, they would option your script and they would pay you pretty good money. And, uh, and then you'd go to meetings with different investors and producers and, uh, and actors, and, and it felt like the thing was going. You know, and you'd spend months doing this and then it would just fall apart. And that was it. You never heard from those people again. And this happened a lot of times. Do you ever get used to that or every time do you get your hopes up? Um, you get your hopes up, even though in the back of your mind, you try not to get your hopes up. <laughs> but, you know. You do it for every time. I mean, I, I did it in, in China, too. And they, they bought my script and the meetings, and, and they were great. You know, I went to incredible Chinese dinners. <laughs> and <laughs> um, and they, they hired me for other things. But the movie never got made. Wow. And China is such a big force in just you know, the movie viewing audience, you know, so many, you know, American action films, you know, they make with an eye on China, you know, because action translates so well around the world and into different markets. So it's just interesting how, you know, if you had like some, you know, potential blockbuster, whether it's sci-fi action or just pure action, maybe China would be a little more receptive now to financing that for you. No, well, China... Um... There's all these rules you have to go by when you go to a foreign country, especially an Asian country. And, um, and I, to go into it, uh, you know, I had to learn what they were. And I, I passed all those rules, even with my first script, but I had to, to change some things. You, you, can't, um, you can't do certain things. Um, like, for example, um, I wrote a ghost story a Thai ghost story it takes place in Thailand and they have a lot of the same ghosts and spirits that China has. They just sort of transfer over and they have some different names, but they're basically the same thing. So I took that script and the problem was that for China, you can have ghosts and you can have spirits, but they have to take place in history, ancient history. You can't have them take place in modern times. So Interesting. That, that was a cutoff because my film was modern. Okay. Well, that leads me to, you know, if you'd like to talk about this, you know, speaking of near misses and, you know, getting so close, you can just taste it. You wrote a Thai horror film 
And you actually went as far as producing and directing a trailer. You did that in Thailand, and you were so close to getting this produced. Um, what happened? Well, um, I thought I would be clever, and I would make the trailer as if I had made the whole movie. So most independent trailers, if you see them, they have like one scene or two scenes of the actors talking. But I went and I hired professional Thai actors from Bangkok. I flew them up to Chiang Mai to where I shot the film. Um, I had, uh, my crew was from six different countries. Um, they were all experts and professionals. And uh, I designed this thing so that I would do a lot of different scenes and it would seem like I had shot the whole movie and then just cut these scenes out to make a trailer. Okay. And then I got special effects people and, uh, and, and did the, the whole thing. And it was, a, it was a nice trailer. And then the producers really wanted to do it. And then one after the other, they cut me off without an excuse. And I go, what the heck's going on? Well, it turned out that in uh, there, there are people that control certain aspects of filmmaking. And if you don't pass these people, they're okay. Films do not get made. And they particularly didn't want a foreigner who wrote and directed a Thai film making a Thai film. Even though everyone in the film was Thai and they spoke Thai. So this would would have been really good for the local actors and the local film community there. Right. So you think the powers that be, this was just on principle, like how dare he come into our country and you know do everything? Do do you think part of this is I mean, film is such a collaborative medium. But sort of the ironic part is it takes a lot of people to make a film, but it takes usually one single person to be the driving force to actually, you know, go from beginning to end to see this through. You right. sound like, you know, you're a driving force, but do you think when, especially, you know, you, you're sitting alone writing your screenplay, writing is very solitary. Then when you have to go out and wear a different hat, you know, what's it like to then switch and suddenly, you know, you have to be very diplomatic? You know, did you find that maybe you didn't want to wear that hat? Like, you know, the diplomacy part is so far away from the creative part. Or do you wish maybe you had partnered with other people who would handle, you know, those types of things? Well, I, well, I enjoy wearing those two hats and I got along with most people and, and uh, all the the people from the different countries and the ties, we pretty much all got along because I would give them their opportunity to be as creative as they wanted. I didn't say, you have to do it this way and that way. My, my uh, cinematographer, he was excellent, and we worked together, and he had ideas that were better than my ideas, and, and we, sh we shot like that. We had a constrained time. Um, but this isn't only true in Thailand. This also happened to me in Canada, where a Canadian company wanted to uh, make one of my films. And I wanted to 
I wrote it, but I wanted to direct it. That was the, my first opportunity to direct. And they said, yes, you can write it and you can direct it, but you can't get credit for both. So if you want to direct it, we can give you a credit for directing, but you can't get a credit for writing. Or you can get a credit for writing, but you can't get a credit for directing. Wow. And this sort of blew my mind. <laughs> Did they, they want to give the credit that you didn't take to a Canadian? Well, they would they give it to... Uh, uh, they, they have a name for people that don't... Uh, that are non-people. And I can't remember what the name is right so now. So like a placeholder name. Yes. Like, so you do the work, but they put a fake name in your place. Yes. Wow, that's pretty mind-blowing. So I, I, I got a lot of um, inaccurate information. Other people said, no, you shouldn't do that. You should stick to your gun. So I listened to them, and that was a fatal mistake on my part. So they didn't hire me. <laughs> Quite the education. Well, you know, I try not to be super cynical, even when it comes to Hollywood, but the more I hear stories out there, I think, wow, maybe the way a lot of movies get made and that, you know, the locals are satisfied is that, you know, Hollywood power players, they grease, you know, a few palms along the way to, you know, like you, more independent guy, you don't have the same... Not even clout, but I think just, I don't know, I think Hollywood maybe pays people off to sidestep some of these rules. Uh, well, I, I can't answer that, but that aspect of it, the producing aspect, is the business part. And they will do what they need to do in order to make money. And then I would also want to thank, you know, all these, you know, places people film at are, are all good, good people. But it just seems like, I don't know, the I won't say Hollywood is like the mafia, but it just seems like at a certain point when you have any big entity and Hollywood, I think, has so many layers of protection. That's why, you know, if there, if something good or successful happens, everyone wants to take credit. If something flops everyone kind of hides in the woodwork and no one's around to take blame. That's true. And that must be frustrating, especially for the people with integrity who are there for everything, the good and the bad. Yeah, well, I had 15 years of it. That was enough for me. Well, that leads me to my next question. You, you're quite the uh, prolific, I would say, novelist, um, you know, the, the printed page or nowadays the electronic page, ebooks as well, was part of turning to that maybe some frustration that when you write a screenplay, you're at so many other people's mercy. But if you sit down to write a short story or a novel, that's you. No one can stop you. Well, in screenplays, when you originally write a spec screenplay, it's all you. So you have the original screenplay. Even by the time it's made into a movie, it can be completely different. Uh, with a novel, um, how it comes out is how you wrote it. Right. The nice thing about the novel nowadays with 
you know, I mean, Amazon's totally changed it with their, you know, eBooks for Kindle that yes, with the screenplay, it's all you, but very few people are going to see it in its finished form. And, and that's not even including just reading the screenplay itself, but, you know, just to get it produced the way you want to. Whereas with writing now, you know, through a Kindle ebook, you know, you can, you know, overnight, once you upload it and it's out there, you know, thousands of people can instantly, you know, read it that next day. Yes, they can, but they don't. <laughs> it, it, it comes to marketing. Okay. And even with marketing, um, is it's not super successful unless you have a lot of money to put behind it or somehow you become popular in some other way. So do you think one thing that Amazon has done and some of these other self-publishing platforms that since they've given so much opportunity to so many writers, sure, you can get your work out there, but now you suddenly have, you know, thousands, if not, a, you know, a million times more competition now. Yes, that's true. But even when they didn't have that, the competition was still just as fierce because you had to go through the traditional um, publishers. Well, it seems like the the um, successful writers today, they build an audience. So who would you say, you know, your audience is like when you're writing your novels now, who are you writing for? Well, that's a big problem for me because um, I didn't approach it like that, um, which I should have done. And I, I mentioned this on some other interviews that I had. So anybody out there who wants to be a writer, um, if you want to be successful uh, more quickly than I did, you would stick to one genre. Like if you write horror, do horror. If you write action-adventure, do action-adventure and so forth. Uh, myself, it was like my art career. I have many interests. So I can write in all genres. So I've written 15 novels and nine are published and they cross the spectrum of genres, which is not a good idea for an author because the general population wants an author to be uh, steady in one genre so they know what to expect. So you basically have to dumb yourself down to the lowest common denominator so that people don't get confused that you can write more than one thing. Like they want to know, oh, are you a sci-fi writer? Are you a mystery writer? Are you a romance writer? Is it exactly. basically come down to like what genre? I, ha I have a friend who, who writes um, really good uh, series stories. Um, and she writes in one genre. And she looked at my resume, and she's never read a word I've written. And she says, oh, you just dabble along. People don't want to follow you because you dabble along. And I got incensed because I don't dabble along. <laughs> if you read what I wrote, you can see that I'm not dabbling. <laughs> All my stuff is incredibly researched. And they're important things, whether it's horror or adventure or family, 
um, they're succinct. So yes, I can write in different genres, but um, they're all um, they're all honest in what they do. So now I have to decide: Do I want to go out and get pen names for the different genres I write, or do I want to educate the public and say, "Hey, look, I'm an artist that can write in different genres." Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you said pen names because it seems like that's a solution a lot of writers have. Is if they write in mystery, it's under this name. Even Nora Roberts, everyone knows when she writes as J.D. Robb, that it's her. But it's still in their minds. It's like, okay, this is more of her suspense work. The other is more like her pure romantic work. So, would you consider doing pen names? Well, I've been tossing it around a lot lately because what I'd have to to do is basically unpublish all my books or the books that I wanted to make into pen names. I would lose all my credits for that. All the reviews, everything, that I'd have to redo all the covers, new title, new name, and then come out fresh, and nobody's ever heard of this person. Well, one thing I'm wondering, you know, you could be in multiple genres, but what would you say the common thread is throughout all that? Meaning, what's your personal style? Like, do you have, you know, bits of humor in all of your work? I mean, what's the running thread, you would say? What's your voice as a writer? Well, I, I have bits of everything, humor, suspense, terror, all this stuff. I guess my running thread is that my characters are real. No mm-hmm. matter what genre... I mean, uh, what uh, persuasion they are, what sex they are, where they come from, they're all realistic. Your most current uh, book is called Until Love. And it's interesting. Um, It has some romance. I mean, there's um, a lesbian couple. It's against a political backdrop. It's got, you know, humanity in it little political intrigue. Um, what genre would you call that? Or, you know, what readers were you going after with this book? Well, again, when I wrote this, I didn't consider the readers. I considered the story. And the story happened to be with uh, a lesbian couple. Now, when I originally wrote this, I wrote it as a screenplay in 2003 and in 2003 no women had made it into the political realm as a candidate so nobody was doing this and no gay people were elected anywhere in congress at that time and when i submitted this to production companies they said well you like the story it'll never be made into a movie And so that was the end of that story. So then uh, a year or so ago, I was convinced to turn it into a novel. So I did. And of course, that uh, by making it into a novel, of course, I enlarged on the story. 
Well, it sounds like you are a little ahead of your time. Do you think now Hollywood's catching up with you and some of the ideas you had 10 or 20 years ago? Well, I think that they would be, but now when they, I mean, I don't know what they're going to think because it sounds like if you just look at it now that I'm sort of jumping on a bandwagon that's already started. But in fact, I wrote it way before it started. So n nobody knows this. And the other problem for me about the pen names is um, a lot of women and lesbian readers won't read this because a man wrote it. Oh, interesting. So I know that, you know, there's, you know, bias, you know, both ways, you know, the, the whole thing with, I think I mentioned J.D. Robb, you know, Nora Roberts, you know, you found that a lot of people who use initials, you know, or sometimes just to make it so that that was ambiguous. So you weren't even thinking of, you know, if a man or a woman wrote the book. Right. Well, originally women did the initials because mm -hmm. they wanted to basically write uh, like as a man, not as a man, but they just didn't want to be judged for being a woman. And I, and I don't blame them. But so I, now I find myself in the opposite realm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, it's so funny, too, that certain genres were traditionally considered, oh, men wrote action, adventure, espionage, you know, women, romance. And obviously, that's not always been the case. You know, people have been using pen names for a long time. You know, people probably be surprised when they learn, you know, their favorite romance author, you know, with a flowery, you know, woman's name was actually a man and vice versa. You know, a lot of hard hitting mystery, although, you know, now they call it crime. You know, you know, if, if a woman writes it, you know, it'd be, oh, a cozy mystery. If a guy writes it, no, it's hard boiled crime where well, they're realizing no, you know, people of all genders write all types of genres. Well, that's true. And, and does that, that make you feel better now with your work that you can boldly go out there as Stuart Land and if you want to write a lesbian romance? Well, that's what I thought, <laughs> but that's not what's happened. Interesting. Well, what is your, um, I guess, motivation because obviously you seem very self-motivated. You know, you've succeeded at so many things. When you're writing these, you're putting them out, and sometimes it seems like, oh, you know, is anyone noticing? How do you keep yourself motivated to keep doing this? Well, I wish I had an answer for that. But um, I don't have a general answer. Um, I've just... Uh, always been self-motivated because um, when I was starting out, I didn't meet people that motivated me. I didn't meet them physically. So um, people always told me whatever I wanted to do, I couldn't do it. So that made me want to do it even more. So then it, I realized that if I motivated myself and I put myself in those positions, um, I could do it. It's it's exhausting, but, um, but, but I do what I can. And then in writing, I'm motivated by the characters because they, uh, they have lives of their own. 
and that it's not me infusing them. It's the other way around. Well, I still have a few more questions for you, but before we wrap up, I know you've been mentioning your website and where people can actually read more about your work, whether it's your uh, writing, you know, your um, sculpting and special effects work in Hollywood. Uh, where should people go to on the web to find you? Okay, for writing, it would be stuartland.com. That's S-T-U-A-R-T. L-A-N-D. And that'll take you to my writing website. And But there's links there that go to my art website and go to my uh, movie trailer website. But if you want to go just to the art website, that would be studiosl.com. Excellent. Well, I encourage people to do it because, you know, you've done so much. You know, we're just scratching the surface here. I think they can just really... Uh, immerse themselves into more of your work there. But um, just a couple of final things I want to talk about. Um, one is you're in Thailand, and I was just curious, were you already living there when you started doing the trailer for the Thai film, or did you go there to make the movie and fall in love with it and then move there? No, I've been here 20 years. So, yeah, so, no, I knew all these people or a lot of these people, and um, I just decided that I would uh, write something that pertained to, Hol uh, to Thailand because I never wrote any uh, novels that have it, although I have a couple of Thai people in, in some of my novels. But uh, I wasn't interested really in writing about uh, adventures in Thailand, so to say. Uh, but the, uh, this horror story is about Thailand, but it also can be about uh, anyone in the world. It doesn't necessarily have to be a story about Thailand, but it works for Thailand. You know, where you live, are there a lot of other expatriate Americans living there? Uh, there's a lot of expats. Um, mostly they're from Europe, um, but they're from, from everywhere. I, I think just about every country has expats here. It's the second our third largest city in Thailand. Um, it's a beautiful city. It's 700 years old. It's got 300 or more temples. Um, it, it's a spectacular place. Um, although I live in a neighborhood, it's all Thais. I don't really see that many uh, foreigners unless I, I go into town. Well, from my perspective, and I think from a lot of other people, they'd probably look at you and think, wow, you're living a pretty good life. You're in this beautiful country. You know, your time is your own. You're creating, you're writing novels, you're publishing them. I mean, you ever just sit back and think, yeah, my life's pretty good here? Well, <laughs> in some sense, it's really good. But, you know, Thailand, like any other foreign country, they have their problems. Um you know, uh, you, you have to live in a foreign place as an expat to understand what those problems are. And you say you don't necessarily use those surroundings and the people you meet directly in your work, but do you think you might do that in the future? Has, has that area made, you know, a strong impression on you that you think, wow, maybe I'd like to make like a, 
you know, write a murder mystery in a little Thai village or, you know, has it spurred your imagination in that way? Well, I have that in my, my horror novel, which is basically, it's a, it's a mystery. It's a, it's a mystery horror novel. I mean, uh, screenplay. Uh, so I describe certain things that take place in Thailand and how people think. Um, so that's pretty much as much as I will do there, although I have a, uh, a main character in my science fiction story who's uh, a Thai woman. Um, so you get a little description of what Thailand is like there, but, uh, but it goes beyond that, of course. Um, so yes, I have some ties in, in my stories, but, um, as far as the modern version of it, besides the screenplay, I, I don't think I'll go into that. A lot of people write about their experiences here. Um, and there's enough people that do that, that I don't really have to do that. Sure. One thing I would wonder, would you ever sit down and write a little more in depth about other experiences such as, you know, doing special effects, you know, sculpting for Hollywood, um, your time in Vietnam. I mean, it sounds like you've lived such an interesting life. Have you ever thought of writing about, you know, specific pockets of your life? Um, well, People have asked me to write uh, a biography, but I have really no interest in going back over my own life in that kind of detail to, to do that. As far as things about uh, my special effects stuff, if you go on my website, for every film, I give a background of how I got into it and what I did and what I made. So you can read all about that there. Um, Certain aspects of my life are actually in my novels. I don't say what they are or, or who they are, but they, they come up in the aspects of the different characters. So, yes, some of my experiences are, uh, or do take place in my novels or screenplays, but nobody knows what they are. If you could go back in time, just after the Vietnam War, you know, you're the x-ray technician, you're out now. I don't know if you got the GI Bill or what, but, you know, still young looking, you know, the life ahead of you. you know, what advice would you give to that steward? Well, I would say go after what excites you, what impels you to move forward. Don't really listen to what other people have to say of what you can do or what you can't do. Um, set your mind on a certain thing and go at it with everything you have. Do you have any regrets? Lots of regrets. <laughs> <laughs> at least you can laugh at them now, right? <laughs> well. I, I have this thing, uh, you, you meet people who say, oh, I, I lived a life, it was this and that, and I have no regrets. Personally, I don't trust anybody who says they have no regrets, because you should have regrets. Nobody lives a perfect life. Regret doesn't mean that you want to, uh, you, you can't change a regret, but you can have feelings about regrets. Is there any, like, one point in your career where you 
you wish you had continued with one of those pursuits a little bit longer? Yes. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you what they were. <laughs> and so not which one. Maybe it was photographer. That, that would have been fun to do a little more. You know, and I, we didn't even go into all the things you did. I mean, I think you did art direction and costume design. And you had your hand in so many things. You must like, you must be an appreciator of beauty. Even though you well, worked with alien guts and intestines, it sounds like that was also balanced with, you know, the appreciation for beauty. Well, most of it was my appreciation for beauty. All those other things that I did for movies, those were basically small parts because I did other things. You know, movie parts, they last so long and then you go you know, off and do other things. Um, yeah, that's, that's how that works. So now at this point, you know, you're at this point where you have a lot of experience and wisdom, so it seems natural to share that or to teach. And you do writing workshops. Yes. Uh, and you edit for writers and things like that. So what's that process like? Like when you're doing a workshop or teaching other writers, you know, what do you bring to them? What do you think your wisdom I mean, do you think you have shortcuts now? It sounds like you've got that little impatience of, look, don't make the mistakes I did. You know, start on the right foot. You know, what's your approach when you teach people? Well, I try to show them ways to do things that doesn't um, change their own creativity. I don't want to teach people how to write. I want to show them a way that they can write and a, a better way to show um, the stories that they want to tell and to bring their characters alive. So that's, that's what I try to show in my writing workshops. And when I do them, I have them write something that's only a page or two, and then I can correct them and show them a way that they might do it a little better. But... I try not to say, uh, don't do what I did, because everybody makes their own mistakes and mistakes help you grow. So what might be a problem for me might not be a problem for them. So basically, it's just to show people um, another way and maybe a faster way to get to what they want to do. And... Can you teach people motivation? You cannot teach people motivation. Motivation has to come from within, and that comes from partly genetics and partly your environment and how you're raised and the people that you meet and how you turn things over in your mind. You said there was the woman that looked over your resume and said, oh, you, I can't remember the exact words, you bounce around a lot, seem to be the gist. Now that you've had a little more time to think about that, you know, if you could uh, talk to her again and, and kind of say, that may be true, but this is what you've gotten out of trying so many things, you know, how would you respond to now having a little more time to kind of think about that? Well, she didn't say bounce around. She said I dabbled. 
Oh, dabble, that's it. Dabble like, is different than bouncing around. Right, dabble right. means that you don't really get into anything. <laughs> I'm glad but, you said that. I wanted to get the exact wording. So but if you, you go in and you, if you read anything I've read or you go and you look at the things I've made, you could clearly say that I don't dabble. Yes, exactly. So what would, what would we, we say to someone like that or say, you know, a writer came to you saying, hey, I, I want to write, but I also want to do this. Or if you were a life coach and someone said, hey, I can't figure out what I want to do. I'm afraid of making the wrong choice. What would you say to them? Okay. This is tricky. First, I would say never be afraid of making the wrong choice. You have to make a choice. Even if you don't make a choice, that's your choice. So for me and probably other people like me, we don't have one choice. We have to go from this to that. And some people do dabble. They just try something and then they go off to something else and they've never really experienced it. Um, then there's people like me who don't dabble. We learn it to a great skill, but we still have to go off and do other things. But then the people that are more likely successful as far as making money and having a happy life uh, stick to one or two things and they become proficient at it and they become known for it and, um, uh, and then people know them. So they're successful in that way. Well, at this time in your life, you've kind of landed now with novel writing. And one good thing about having so much experience is novel writing is a, a discipline that lets you use all your experience. So do you think that like, you know, the writers you see, do you think sometimes young writers, even though they might have talent, they don't have the experience to add more meaning to their stories. Well, I would say yes and no. I mean, there's writers who are just terrible, but they're popular because they're really good at marketing. And uh, they put out crappy stories and they're very successful. Uh, and they're in genres that everybody likes and the readers are not good, and they don't care, but they made tons of money, so you have that. Then there are uh, some writers, the very first thing they write, they're excellent. Their experience, they might not have a lot of experience, but what they do have transcribes to the page. They're just automatically good. There's, there's people like that. They're good in writing, they're good in sculpting. Um, so it, it's hard to tell, you know, you can't, you can't make a blanket statement about people. Absolutely. Well, we're going to wrap up. I've got five final questions. Now I don't necessarily know what those questions are, but um, I'm fast on my feet. So, <laughs> <laughs> but number one is, you know, when we were talking about the special effects, the sculpting, and I'm a big fan of the conventions and, I'm sure you know horror, sci-fi, the Comic-Cons and all that. And um, what you do or what you did, you know, on those classic movies is still so loved. Have you been to the conventions? Have you been a guest at those? I've never been a guest. I went to the second Comic-Con in San Diego 
this was, I don't know, 30 years ago or so. And uh, I never, I never went to any of them after that. Oh, wait, I went to one for Star Trek because my friend was the writer producer. So I went to that one. But, you know, they didn't honor me because I didn't write anything that they kept. Um, so I've been to a, a lot of the um, professional um, things that you actually had to be a professional to get into that uh, the public couldn't go. And those were all in Hollywood. Um, I can't remember the names of them right now, but I went to a lot of those while I was working there. And I had my work displayed by other people, but I didn't have my own display because um, I wasn't a sh my own shop. I freelanced. Okay. So question number two, what's the next book you're working on? Uh, well, I started on my fifth vampire book. So that's one. And I started on my second um, biography, uh, not of me, but of a, a German Jew who escaped Nazi Germany during World War II, who I interviewed back in the 90s, and he since died. And I wrote the first book, and now I have to write the second book because the story is so huge. Whether it's one of your novels, special effects work, who knows, photography, or even hairstyling, what's been the best feedback you've ever received from someone? The best feedback? Well, hmm. I mean, every time somebody gives me a positive feedback, it's my best feedback. You know, it's crazy about something like um, Amazon and Kindle and all that. Everything people put out now, they're rated. It's so weird how life comes down to, you know, one to five stars. Does that ever make you just crazy, feeling at the mercy of people's, you know, feedback and the star system on Amazon? Well, it's not Amazon. This is life. I mean... I started before there was computers, so I got feedback on every single thing I ever did. And some people love it, some people hate it. Um, you know, it's, it's impossible you, to, to win completely. It's just, uh, that's how human nature is. You're on the receiving end of criticism, but as a teacher, you give criticism... What do you find is the best way to give constructive criticism to a creative person? Well, criticism, yes, but I don't give negative criticism. Um, I explain w why something could be better or how to change it so that it can work better. Um, there are rules that people generally follow. If you make up your own rules, well, then there's no criticism I can give. Could you expand just a little bit more on that? Say somebody comes to you in a workshop and says, hey, I'm lost, you know, be brutal with me. You know, I really want your feedback. Do you give that to them or do you still 
go a little more gentle? Well, I, I have to read what they've written. And if I'm with them, I can say, why did you write this sentence like this? Why did you write this paragraph like this? If, if you're talking about a character, there's things that you want to know about the character. You don't need a lot of room to give information about a character. So in my stories, even if my character has one line or two lines and they don't even talk, you can give information about them to explain who they are and why they're there in your story. Um, and you don't have to get verbose about it. It's just in the way they move, the way they do things. Um, and you can take that paragraph that they wrote and you can write it in a different way and explain to them why you did what you did so you can show them a way to uh, ad advance it for themselves. They can take an another paragraph they did and relook at it and reformulate what their character is trying to do and explain it more clearly. And finally, I don't know if that was four or five questions, but I think this the last thing you said kind of leads to the, this final one. And I think this applies to anyone, whether or not you're in the creative arts. This could be, you know, someone working an office job nine to five in a cubicle. But like you were saying, with some of those jobs in Hollywood, you didn't always get proper credit. You know, you didn't always get, you know, the praise and recognition that you should have had. So how can we, you know, whether or not we're working in something creative, but how can we take situations and look back on them where, you know, we deserved more? How can we give ourselves our own praise and recognition? And how have you done that? Huh. Well, um, when you finish a project, no matter what it is, um, you have to take your own personal pride and what you've done. If you think it's good, then you should own up to that to yourself. You can't convince somebody else that what you made is good. So as far as working for other people, like when I worked in Hollywood, um, you, you can't tell them what to do. I mean, you can't make them give you a credit. Unless you're already super popular, like Giger was, then you can say, I want the credit. But for me, no, they just go and hire somebody else if I make a demand. Or they would say, okay, and then they would leave me out anyway. So um, until the Me Too movement moves around to all the other arts, um, it's going to continue to be like that. As for my Hollywood stuff, it took over 30 years for the IMDB, the International Movie Database, to list the movies that I worked on. So now they're up to about 20 movies that I worked on, and they pretty much list what I did and, uh, and, and what, I, what I did, and then they have to put in there that I didn't receive a credit. So at least now they recognize two-thirds of my films. But it took them thir over 30 years to do this. 30 years, better late than never. And, you know, I think you brought up good points of, 
you know, people need to internally, you know, recognize themselves. We always are going after external, um, you know, external um, affirmations or people, you know, we're always waiting for that magic person out there. And sometimes, you know, that magic parent or boss or teacher isn't there to give us that pat on the back. It sounds like you've learned to not only give yourself a pat on the back, but to also let go of that, you know, need that we always need, you know, that external validation. Well, the external validation you need if you want to sell your art, no matter what it is. So I, like most other artists, we continuously have to go through that. They do, and somehow you've done it, and without, you know, just going bonkers with, you know, sounds like you still have a good attitude. So I think maybe, you know, there's so many different ways to sum up your story, although you never want to be fully summed up. But it seems like what I've, you know, gained from this is that you've done all this without becoming bitter, you know, with still having, you know, a positive but a realistic attitude, and also just that you still have the energy and the motivation to still create. You know, that was not taken away from you. And I think that anyone who can still have such a work ethic and who can constantly put out new work and even, you know, do things to surprise yourself, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, that's the enviable thing. That's where it doesn't matter if you're a brand name or if you have, you know, a gigantic bank account. You know, you have this creative outlet that I think a lot of people wish they had. Yes. Well, I would say for anybody that wants to be involved in the arts or maybe anything they do, but especially the arts, is to go after whatever art you want to be in and look at the cutting edge, but always understand the past. You have to know where art came from and and do the traditional stuff in order to break any of the rules going forward. For myself, uh, I, I'm self-taught, but I was a traditional artist. But now I'm I'm trying to learn ZBrush and all, all these other 3D programs, which are mind-boggling to me. And there's there's people in their teens and 20s that could sculpt rings around me, and I look at them and it blows my mind what they could do. And I'm just learning how to do it, and um, it's marvelous the, what the computer can do and, and the arts that it can give you. So I, I encourage everybody to, uh, to look at all the new techniques and avenues that are out there and become familiar with them. Well, I'm going to remind people again, your website, stuartland.com, S-T-U-A-R-T. L-A-N-D. You're not that other kind of Stuart with the S-T-E-W. Oh. <laughs> and I appreciate you connecting all the way from Thailand. Here I am on the West Coast in the U.S. We've got crazy time difference. And we somehow made this happen through the magic of Skype. Yes. Where are you located? Right outside of Seattle. I'm in a place called Port Orchard, Washington. Oh, nice place. I've been to Seattle once. Oh, very nice. Well, I hope someday that I'll make it to Thailand because it seems like it's a very beautiful place. It is. 
Well, take care, and I expect you to have uh, several more novels probably completed by the time I get this podcast posted. (laughs) Okay, thanks, Kelly.